Hello and welcome back to another episode of A Positive Podcast. A Positive Podcast is powered by OKClarity.com, but more about them later in the show. If you would like to sponsor an episode in honor of a loved one, or just because you appreciate this podcast, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. If you're curious to hear more about positive coaching, see if it's a fit for you, please reach out through my website, apositivecoach.com. In today's episode, titled Special Minds, Sensitive Hearts, Living a Wholesome Life While Being, quote, Different. In this conversation, we sit down, my husband and myself, with Rabbi Chase Taub. As of late, you may have heard Rabbi Taub sharing lots of classes and lectures on a fascinating topic, which talks about neurodivergence. And in this conversation, we delve into neurodiversity, also known as being different, highly sensitive, special, etc., And together we explore the journey of parenting children who are neurodivergent, navigating adult relationships with loved ones who are just different and maybe struggling with neurodivergence. And Rabbi Shays Taub offers invaluable insights and practical guidance. And he shares wisdom drawn down from the rich tapestry of his own life, his own lived experiences, from Hasidic teachings and the profound lessons he has learned along the way. And I think you will discover the beauty of embracing these differences and you'll gain a profound understanding of how to support and nurture your loved ones who think and act uniquely. So this is a conversation that goes beyond acceptance. Its aim is to inspire and empower all of you listening on the journey of understanding and compassion. So sit back, relax, and be ready to grow. The Positive Podcast is brought to you by OKClarity.com. OKClarity is the place for any Jew, no matter how religious you are, to find an excellent therapist, psychiatrist, coach, or nutritionist, and it's completely free for you to use. OKClarity.com's professionals are vetted, and they have extensive experience working with the Jewish community. Yes, you can even find me there, because I'm listed as a coach. If you're in the market for a therapist, a coach, a nutritionist, a psychiatrist, or the like, you want to check them out. If you don't find what you're looking for, they have a concierge service where you complete a short form and they will personally match you with someone. Just an important side note, if you are a wellness professional, I highly recommend joining their directory. Their team is amazing and I've received referrals from their platform and OK Clarity has an amazing WhatsApp status with over 8,000 obsessed followers. And yes, I am one of them. Their WhatsApp is a free way to improve your mental health and they post great humor, so you'll laugh too. If you have WhatsApp, shoot them a message at 917-426-1495. Again, that's 917-426-1495. We'll put the links to their website and their WhatsApp in the show notes so you can find those links and go ahead, smash those links. You will not regret it. And now back to our show. Rabbi Chase Taub back to a positive podcast. This is actually our third time we are together and we're really excited to have you back today as a guest. And today I also have the privilege of having my husband, Rabbi Nechemia Shusterman on this episode. He's been with the other, other two as well. Now today's topic was really born out of some of your recent podcasts that you've shared, classes, lectures, and even some social media posts that you've made regarding neurodivergence and how it interplays in matters of Jewish life and life in general and Hasidus. Now you've made it clear that you are not a mental health professional. I've heard you say this many times and no yes. one 
medical advice from these talks, but still right. there's an immense amount of wisdom <clears throat> and lessons how to live life while being quote different or quote neurodivergent and how to live with someone who is different or neurodivergent, or maybe some parents who are listening who are curious how the best way to parent children who struggle with this difference. And that's really my goal and my intention with today's episode. My hope is that people will be able to walk away with kind of a way forward, practical lessons and parallels to help them in this challenge. And specifically taking those these ideas from Hasidus, as I know that you so often do. Yeah, so I know that Nehemi, you wanted to share something as well with regard to this. Okay, so without further ado, so in uh, full disclosure, you and I have been discussing a lot of this stuff uh, privately, offline, meaning through WhatsApp, right? Or whatever other medium we've been uh, communicating with. By and the way, I should mention that since we do have a real life relationship, I happen to know that you're starting your Chabad House's campaign tomorrow. Yes, yes. So it's a pretty big Shalom Bias move on your part to be on your wife's podcast when you have to fundraise tomorrow. Can you just tell everyone the link in case people want to <laughs> be partners in your Chabad? Yes, even though no one should feel obligated. It's This is not what this no, is. No, of about. course not. If, they, if they're so moved. If one is so moved, we are celebrating 20 years of our Chabad House. Mazel Tov. So it's Razathon slash 20 years, two zero years. That's okay. We can put it in a show notes if you want, Rabbi. Okay. That's so generous. Okay. Let's go back to the topic at hand. Okay. So back to the topic at hand. Okay. So we've been talking about a lot of these top topics off air. Right. And, you know, at some point it became clear that, that, well, it became clear that you were really releasing some pretty impressive bombshells, some really brilliant ideas. It's just as I'm processing it and it becomes clear enough for me to articulate it i'm you know that's the magic of social media it doesn't have to be that polished you know i'm yeah i'm putting it out there yeah right so so you've been putting stuff out on social media and then some of it you've been you know either with me following up with it uh on those posts privately it became clear that there's some really interesting stuff coming out over here and it became clear at some point that there would be value in letting the world in on the conversation so right the whole the whole train of thought Right. So Razel's platform provides a platform that already exists and you obviously have your own platform. So right. this is, this is, but this, this is yeah. unique in the fact that this is a long form conversation, which I think this topic is due for. Right. And it, it, it forces you to flesh it out all the way and it gives us the opportunity to really pick your brains and really develop these ideas. Okay, yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited about it. Yeah. 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 So okay. are we, let's see if it's as good in you know when we're recording as it is when we do it in private. Okay. So okay. first, let's just go to the very very beginning. Let's kind of build our way up to to the okay. guide me. How do you want to start? All right. So I guess the first question is 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 how did we get here? I know there's a nice rabbi like you, Rabbi Shastow, director of SoulWords.org, uh, um, pub, um, international public speaker, a person who does all this. Torah-related stuff, Tanya-related stuff, Hasidus-related stuff. How is it that we got into the conversation of neurodivergence, ADD, ADHD, autumn spectrum disorder? You know, what does this have to do with you? How, how come you're talking about this? Um, you, you claim, yeah. you, you, you disclaimed again that you're not a mental health professional. So right. why is this even in your conversation? Or why are you so passionate right. about Why are you so passionate about this? Yeah. Okay. So I, I, I could... In one way, I could say I've been talking about this for years without using the words. Interesting. In, in some ways, 
everything I've been doing has been <laughs> neurodivergent uh, Hasidis for neurodivergent neuro audiences, but without using that word. So maybe I think if if maybe the, the right way to start the story or, or this chapter of the, of the story is um, a few months ago, I got a call from Rabbi Simon Jacobson and he said he had a course coming up on Torah and neurodiversity. And he said, would you offer part one of the three-part series? He says he has some mental health professionals who are going to talk from a more clinical standpoint. Could I give the spiritual piece? So I said, you know, I don't know why you're asking me, but I'm always happy to do a, a favor, especially for somebody who I have so much respect for. I said, sure, sign me up. And so I gave a talk uh, online where I explained basically the idea of neurodiversity. Uh, neurodiversity just means that there are people who are neuro neurodivergent, meaning they don't think the normal way. And then there are people who are neurotypical, people who think the normal. And by normal, I'm, by the way, that's not a judgment of saying what's good or bad. I'm just saying what's common. Um, and I spoke about the fact that Torah says that that no two people think alike, just like no two people have the exact same face. No two people have the exact, exact same mind. And from that perspective, basically, to some extent, we're all neurodivergent. However, yes, there is such a thing as normative uh, thinking. I gave some examples in Halacha about the fact that Torah does... does um, qualify certain ways of thinking as normal, quote unquote normal, and other ways as exceptions to the norm. And um, that, that, but th I don't know if that any of that was like so groundbreaking. Basically, then I, I I got into a thing that I first developed a few years ago, and uh, this is what I say on, on on that class. A few years ago, I got a letter. When I was, I, I'm, I'm writing for Ami again, the advice column, but with the first time, my first uh, Gilgal writing for Ami. So I got a letter from a mother who said that her son is very uh, negative. She used the word negative. He's always complaining. He's always discontent. Everything we do, it's never what he wanted. He's, food is never right. And every experience we have, you always find some flaw. He's always... Always uncomfortable with everything. Okay, so I responded to her, and as you follow the story here, I'm I'm telling you about a a live class that I gave a few months ago on neurodiversity, and within that class, I hearkened back to uh, an Ami column that I wrote a few years ago. Okay, and in that column, I said to this mother. Something I usually don't do, which is I to, I spoke personally. And I said, you know, I knew a kid who when he was little, he used to fall on the ground weeping because the tag in his shirt made him uncomfortable. His mother had to cut the tag out of his shirt because he was just so uh, consumed with the distraction, the, you know, with the, the sensorial overload of the tag in the shirt. And I said, that kid is me. So 
I said, your kid's not negative. He's sensitive and he's getting overwhelmed and overloaded and overstimulated. I said, uh, and, and then I used a term to try to explain it in a spiritual way. I said, you know, we have the famous Machlekes Beishamai Beis Hillel, the two schools, Beishamai and Beis Hillel. And traditionally, the way it's looked at is, is that Beis Shammai is machmer, they're more stringent in their rulings, and Beis Hillel is more makel, they're more lenient in their rulings. But uh, there's a deeper way of understanding it. Um, the Arizal says that when Mashiach comes, we're going to flip the way we rule, and we're going to follow Beis Shammai. For now, we follow Beis Hillel. And Chassidus explains it's because Beis Shammai is looking at things from an idealistic point of view, or call it maybe perfectionistic point of view. And in this current model, in this imperfect world of Golos, of exile, Beis Shammai's uh, vision is just, we can't live up to it. And so we can't, Halacha cannot adhere to that such a such an exacting uh vision so we follow base hill which is much more realistic much more attainable however when the world is perfected then we will be able to live up to base shamai and uh, i said you know like the famous machlek is is it um better to never have been born so base shamai will say yeah it, it's better to never have been born why because if you're never born then existence is an abstraction it's a concept well in a concept everything's beautiful but then the problem is you know the devil's in the details when it actually becomes real life oh, real life can be very uh ugly it can be it can have its rough patches it can the never never lives up to the to the pristine vision when it was just a, a concept so bishami would say no real life embodiment it's uh it's not what it's cracked up to be right um Another example, Beis Beis Hillel. When you go to a wedding, how are you supposed to compliment the bride? So, so Beis Hillel says, every kala is kala chesudavinah. You just look. He married her. The groom married her. He must like her. So, compliment everybody. They're all gracious. They're all beautiful. And uh, Beis Shammai says, no, kameshihi. Say it like it is. He doesn't have very good uh, social skills. He doesn't know how to do the white lies that are important for. Uh, being socially acceptable. So basically what I explained is there's this, this uh, mentality, which is, if you look at it, it's somebody who's uncomfortable with this world, who always finds existence as it is, um, not to live up to the ideal, um, somebody who is measuring everything against what it could be, meaning the ultimate perfection and seeing how real life never measures up. And an outside observer can look at that and say, wow, this guy's really mean. He's, he's cantankerous. He's, he's grumpy. He's uh, he's an ordinary old man. He's just finding fault and everything. Or you can understand it on a deeper level that you're talking about super, super sensitive souls who actually see things on a, on a loftier level. Now it's so lofty. It doesn't, really translate well, doesn't work well as far as just functioning day to day. And that's why Halacha doesn't follow Beishamai. So anyways, I wrote this to this to, to this woman 
And I said, your son is what I will call, and I include myself in this category, a neshama of Beishamai. Don't call him negative. He's not complaining just to complain. He's so sensitive. He sees what things could be. He feels everything deeply. And real life, especially as a child who doesn't yet have very good coping mechanisms, is overwhelming for him. So I revealed that on this, this live uh, video that I did a few months ago. And that was like the beginning of my talking about these, talk about this subject more publicly and 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 using the lingo, the the words, you know, neurodivergent. I didn't call it neurodivergent before, but yeah, being a, a neshama of beishamai, call it you know oversensitive or whatever you want to call it, is is a type of being neurodivergent. And then from there, after I got that out into the public space, a lot of other stuff started clicking and falling into place. Okay. So that's, that's basically how, how this started in the past few months. But to be clear, falling into place for you, yourself. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Listen, in general, I'm not like a guy who says, oh, I want to go speak about something publicly. What is What do people want to hear? I've never done that. I'm a guy who tries to live life. And like I told you, I'm the kid who fell on the floor because the tag in his shirt was making him crazy. So I'm just a guy who's trying to live life in this embodiment. I have this wonderful uh, advantage that the teachings of Hasidus were given to me and I can draw upon that to figure out how to navigate life. And as these insights sort of become clear to me how to use it in my life, that's when I share it. Okay, so you're saying- oh, And I should also mention, uh, in the course of sharing it, obviously it becomes more clear for me. So it's a virtuous circle in that sense. Right, so what I'm hearing you say is that you're passionate about this because it's personal. Yeah, a hundred percent. I got annoyed. I, I told Nahem you actually I got annoyed because somebody was complimenting me on Instagram the other day and saying, Oh, it's so wonderful that you're educating yourself. And I was like annoyed by that. Like, no, it's not a noble thing. I'm not educating myself. I'm reporting to you the the insights that I'm having in order to figure out life so don't 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 attribute to this some quest for knowledge it's not a quest for knowledge it's just me trying to figure out life okay so that's that's a great segue to my next question so nakamia mentioned to me that you guys had discussed this that you mentioned that you would never want to listen to my hsp podcast episode <laughs> or read books on it or can't do it can't do it, it. now <laughs> That that episode that I had with Jochen and Palter talking about yeah. HSPs was my most listened to podcast to date, probably with tens of thousands of listens. Okay. And, what HSP is just well, for, highly, for the... highly sensitive people. Most people that are listening to this podcast know that the episode. But... Your crowd already knows they don't need the HSP, yeah. right? They know. But okay. The main thing that people have shared with me, and I got tons of feedback from that episode. Right. Is people that listened to it that ident felt for the first time in their life they felt understood, they felt seen. Yeah. Either for themselves or for a parent, they finally understood their child. For spouses, they felt like they finally had verbiage, language, I, um, an idea of what their spouse was going through. 
So I guess my question is, and most importantly for themselves, for themselves, mostly that was the biggest yeah. thing. But my question is, is why wouldn't you want to listen to this? Shouldn't people yeah. try to learn from the experience of others to get educated from experts? Okay. Like you said, not that you're educated, but like you yourself, okay, explain this to me why you don't feel yeah. to First of all, Yechanan is a friend of mine. Okay. So like almost as a friend, I should listen to his podcast, but <laughs> it's already I, a few I, old, but okay. I just can't do it. I can't do it. Um, I'm not proud of it. I'm just, I'm not saying this is what anybody else should do. The first time I heard the term HSP, I don't know, four or five years ago, whenever it was, I was very, very triggered by it. Cause I said, okay, I've, I pick up on things really, really quickly, which is good because I do everything at the last minute. So that comes in handy. So I heard people talking about HSP immediately. I knew what exactly what they were getting at and i said i don't want to hear any more about this because <laughs> either i'm gonna hear what they're saying about it and it's exactly my experience of life in which case why do i want to hear more about what i'm already dealing with all the time <laughs> or it's not going to exactly be my experience of life and it's going to annoy me even more like they got it wrong so whatever i know i'm being irrational and silly but i'm just I, telling I you I don't think it's irrational, but that's exactly my question. I don't mean to interrupt you, but the the point that that I'm that I'm curious about is because for most people there's this existential loneliness, and then right when you're struggling with neurodivergence or being different or as you put it a base shamai kind of neshama, when you when you finally figure out that you're actually not the only kid in yeshiva that's actually homesick, it's like wow. I I, I thought I was the only one. I'm just giving that as an example. Like so many teens and kids and adults feel alone when they're actually in good company. Yeah. So that's what I'm getting at is I would think that somebody who's, who, who may feel that way, why wouldn't they want right. to know about it? Okay. So that's a very valid question. I guess the answer is because I've met that need already because I'm acutely aware that I'm not alone. And there are plenty of people who don't think like the average person. And, and I, and I'm aware of, certain commonalities that various different types of sensitive people have. And so to me, it's not, uh, if I really thought I was the only person in the world who, I mean, I mentioned a minute ago that like I can do things extremely quickly, which is a good thing because I'm always doing things at the last minute. If I thought I was the only guy doing that, I would probably crave finding out that there were other people in the world, but I already know that there are. And and also, furthermore, I think it's not just the knowing that you're not alone. I think it's also very soothing, especially if you have an oversensitive mind. Uh, patterns are soothing. Models are soothing. Uh, you see the Tanya map behind me, which I made. Okay. Why do you think I did that? Because I wanted a model. I like to organize things. I like to organize concepts. I like models. So if I didn't have a model for it, yeah, I'd probably desperately gravitate toward any source that could give me a model for it. But I but I do have a model for it uh, and a way of understanding it that makes it make sense to me. Okay, so I, I know exactly where you're going with this. So I want to I want I want to set this up and lobby you the pitch so you can smack it out of the park. But just just for the clarity and the benefit of of others who are listening. So you're not saying don't 
read books that will educate you about other things about life, help you know yourself better, help you be a better. No, person. I'm just talking about my weirdness. I'm not telling anybody what to do. This is your personal experience, but you're not you're not suggesting that others um, follow that. No, everybody should do what what gives them comfort, and what gives them tools for dealing with life. I'm nobody should do anything because I did it. That would be, yeah, the, I'm not a person to, to imitate for sure. Not. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let me pick up on what you just said a moment ago. Yeah. You talk about patterns and, and you, you feel like you know yourself and, and you know your structures. And that's why the Tanya map, which is such a fascinating little piece of the bigger puzzle, which I just understood now, as you just said that. You understand that, Tanya map now? It's no, basically, no, no. I, I understand it, it, this Tanya map is just another example of where there was a lot of information and I needed it to flow. And that's what I do. That's what I do with life because that's how I get through life. I create models and structures so that I can deal with things. Okay, so I'm not going to publicly admit how much I'm identifying with that. I'm just going to go on to my next question. So you talked about creating a tiny map, creating structures, systems, etc. Um, and like you, I'm I am not either a mental health professional, but one might say, and 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 I'm only saying this next sentence, not to put you in a box or in a label, but but as part of our larger conversation, you you mentioned a bunch of different neurodivergent um diagnoses you know lettered illness not illnesses lettered um um behaviors that are listed maybe in the ds dsm um you know right. whether it's add adhd asd autism spectrum disorder such people all have these features often in common right they, in order to survive they have to write lists or or maps or reminders. So so you lumped all these together and you said, this is something that I've been talking about going as far back as my book. I just been now talking have, about and living, talking about and living. And, and I, I even mentioned it in my book, take a few minutes and, and, and lay that out, make that make sense for the people of the world who are ADD, ADHD, you know? Um, okay. Uh, so first uh, of all, I just want to reiter reiter reiterate that you know you said at the very beginning that the that I'm not a mental health professional and I just want to make it very clear these words don't mean a lot to me the official words the 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 acronyms to me they're just metaphors they're just ways of saving time so that people will know what you're referring to so when i use any of these terms or even the term neurodivergent I'm just using a shortcut. It's just a word that people will, will understand better instead of having to explain my whole, instead of having to give you the whole model, I can use that as a shortcut. But what I'm really talking about, you know, you described one symptom of it is people who need to create structures and systems in order to function. Um, I would go deeper and I would say, well, why are they creating structures and systems? Like, what is it? You know, that's that's a reaction to something that's underlying. What What is it that they're reacting to? What are they experiencing that's requiring that? Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, why is it if I won't have a list, I won't get anything done? Right. Uh, and I know everybody, you know, needs some type of structure. But I'm saying like to a to an extreme degree. Right. 
to the person who's waking up at 4 a.m. because they can't sleep because they might forget to put something and they have to get up and either jot it down or just get up for the day. Right, right, which that would be considered probably outside the norm as far as behaviors. Yeah, okay. Um, so I touched upon it earlier, and I'm just going to kind of repeat what I said, but maybe unpack it a little bit more. I called it the Nishamas of Beishamai. Um very sensitive, very idealistic, uh, visionaries, uh, deep. Um, okay, so these are wonderful terms, and uh, they sound great, but you have to also understand that everything's a double-edged sword. So when you're that profoundly sensitive and that profoundly deep, especially as a child who, you know, children don't have the coping mechanisms that adults have by definition, Um Life can be overwhelming. Life itself can be overwhelming. Um, not to mention the social rejection that also occurs, which is a, which is a, just an exacerbating factor that when you are different, then it's hard to, you know, even introverts are social creatures. We all want companionship, but when, for instance, I'll give you an example, just being in a room full of people is energetically overwhelming. So that presents certain challenges, right? Uh, <clears throat> you know, I'll give, I'll give you an example. Nehemiah, <laughs> you and I were speaking about this recently. I put us a, a story on Instagram about, about eye contact. And you said, everyone who knows it already knows it. Anyone who doesn't know it already didn't understand a word you just said. And, I, and I'm sure you're correct, by the way. I don't think I in, in, informed or educated anyone with that with that uh, post or that story. But basically what I said is, if you want me to really focus on you, please do not make me give you eye contact. Because eye contact is something that I do in order to put you at ease that I'm following the social norms. But it's not how I actually focus on you. Um if I'm really focusing on, and by the way, people come to me all the time and they ask me serious, serious questions about their lives and they ask for guidance. And so I, I'm not just talking about chit chat and, uh, you know, cocktail parties and schmoozing. I'm talking about when people come to me and they say, we want your, your opinion on some, ma some matter of, of major import. Um, you want me to focus on you? I, okay, I can give you eye contact and make you feel like you're being heard. Or I can stare off in the corner and maybe pace around a little bit um, and actually connect extremely deeply to what you're putting out there on a level that's maybe even deeper than words. And, and I don't mean that to sound like otherworldly or like psychic powers, although it's very easy to pass off as psychic powers, but it's hilarious to me. Like when you'll say something to somebody that they told you five minutes ago and they're like, how did you know? That's amazing. How did you know that? Well, you told me five minutes ago, right? People don't realize what they tell you. Well, my point is being that tuned in to tiny, tiny micro stimuli that most people have the luxury of being oblivious to is a double-edged sword. It's it, it's a gift of of having a certain um certain awareness and like I said to 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 quote unquote normal people it could even appear like psychic abilities which it's not. It's not. It's 
what you, if you really want to know what it is, it's pattern recognition. It's pattern recognition. And why am I good at pattern recognition? Because I have to be. There's a lot of regular stuff that I'm oblivious to. But then there's stuff that other people are oblivious to. And I'm able to very quickly, not I'm able to, I'm required for day-to-day -day functioning, quickly put together patterns to figure out what's happening around me. Okay. So... <laughs> Where, where 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 did I? I'm not even sure where, where the last thing you were asking me how I, how I got onto this track, but I I, I think you're tying the, all the pieces of the puzzle together. And right. There there are uh, costs for that. Right. Some of the social. And I'm saying that these up. these diagnostic terms are not terribly important to me, so I really it's not. I'm I'm not telling anyone to get a diagnosis or not to get a diagnosis. Um, what I'm saying is, to me, it is clear there are people among us who are very sensitive, who are feeling things on a deep level, and how common is it? Well. I don't know how common it is. I know it's certainly not the majority of people or society would look a whole lot differently than it does. <laughs> so I know it's the minority of people. I know there's a way that most people are and hence society is geared to cater toward that majority way of being wired, which makes perfect sense, by the way. I have no resentment about that. It makes sense that society is geared toward the majority of people. But I don't need these clinical terms really for, for my for my own purposes, I don't need them. It's just something I'm using as shorthand for communication. But what I'm really talking about is if I can get to the core of it, and this is what I'm dancing around, and I just need to say it flat out, okay? Let me just say this flat out. It has occurred to me for a long time that there are people, whatever you want to call them, whatever designation you want to employ to describe this, it doesn't matter to me. There are people for whom embodiment itself is traumatizing. And due to the traumatizing nature of physical embodiment, meaning having to process the stimuli of the physical world, meaning having a consciousness separate from, from the all and the oneness, if you want to speak about it on metaphysical, on, uh, in metaphysical terms. But just that, even if there's no stress in your environment, meaning no extra stress, nothing, you know, nothing bad, quote unquote, happened to you, but just the experience of embodiment is exhausting and puts an incredible strain on this person's capacity to function, okay? And the underlying cause of it is spiritual sensitivity, that embodiment itself is foreign. Embodiment itself is, is strange and, and uncomfortable. And, and you would say, well, if I believe that we're all souls and souls are heavenly beings, then shouldn't this really affect everybody? Shouldn't everybody be uncomfortable with embodiment? 
And my answer is, well, to some extent, I think everybody is slightly uncomfortable with embodiment. And that's what we call existential angst. What's bothering you? Nothing's nothing in particular. It's existence itself is bothering you. But it's on a spectrum. And there are those who have a more acute case of it. Now, when I wrote God of Our Understanding over 10 years ago, trying to think how long ago it was. It was a while ago. It was at least 10 years ago. Um, I coined a phrase, spiritual canaries, in my attempt to explain. I, I posited, based on the 12-step model of addiction recovery, that that says that a spiritual awakening will will alleviate one from the from the need to self-medicate. So I posited, you know, why are there people in the who need to self-medicate in the first place? Like, and why is spirituality the antidote? Why does spirituality give you what you were seeking in the in the the drugs, the alcohol, the the numbing behaviors? So I said, listen, we're all struggling with embodiment. Um, but some of us more so. So I use the term, the canary in the coal mine, you know, that the, the canary, they brought the canary down into the mine shaft because uh, there's poison gas in the mine shaft that is uh, odorless and colorless, tasteless, and you wouldn't know it's there until it's too late, except the canary is more sensitive than the people. If the canary drops dead on the bottom of the cage, then you know it's time for the people to get out of the mine as well. So I said, look, we're all sensitive to some extent to this, strange circumstance of embodiment. But then there are people who are spiritual canaries who are more acutely sensitive to it. And, and that means that they can't live a, a productive life because it's so disruptive. The pain of existence is so disruptive. The pain of embodiment is so disruptive that they need to seek self-medication as some type of relief from it. And those are what we referred to as addicts. And I said, you know, you could just as well refer to those as spiritual canaries. So this, what I wrote over 10 years ago, and these ideas that I'm starting to dabble in now, speaking about it, using terminology, uh, you know, associated with, with various uh, neurodivergent um, ways of being, to my thinking, it's all one concept. It's all one concept. Um, we're talking about people for whom the very the the very fact of being a soul in a body is foreign is overwhelming is disruptive is stressful um is is itself a form of complex trauma and therefore require self-medication to deal with life. Meaning if I'm under that much strain, just existing, just living what most people consider normal life, then yeah, there has to be something to take the edge off of that. So to me, this is all one concept. It's all, yeah. You're touching on so many things. We got to unpack it a little bit as you go, because we're going so deep into it. So for, for a moment, let's just take a second and, and just just talk through some of the ideas of how this manifests so that people can understand what we're talking about. So we're, you're yeah. talking a lot about, about all this in, in the lofty realms. Let's talk about this. What does it look like? What, is, what does it look like? How does this manifest for children, for adults? So you, you gave a couple of examples, you know, looking someone in the eye. Tag in the shirt. 
the, the tag on the shirt, look at people in the eye. I've heard you mention in other scenarios, you know, we can deal with the niceties of the hello goodbyes, but but that's oh, the small oh, talk. The small talk. Thank you. No you tolerance for small talk. Energy. Um, yeah. Or, you know, just, you know, hypersensitive stimuli like, you know, the, the kid who is acting in a way that you would label as obnoxious. But it's because he's in excruciating pain because somebody in the room is breathing funny or is chewing too loud. Right. And you're wondering, well, why are you being so obnoxious? Like, just be tolerant. Well, you don't realize that for this kid, it's like that, that somebody is, you know, chewing into a megaphone right in his ear. We're having to sit with uh, in a school with 100 other classmates for all day long where you're there's so much noise, so much stimuli, so much um, things, energy, so energy that's that's there. They feel human like energy. Yeah. 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 Yeah, definitely. Being forced to be in a public space for prolonged periods is absolutely depleting for somebody that has this type of sensitivity. Yes. Or or being in a shul and being depleted by being in shul and then being thought like, oh, you're less religious, less observant. You care less about davening because being in a public place with that amount of human energy is depleting. Right. I, I don't want to take us on a whole uh, complete side trip, but I, you just hit something, which to me is um, pretty, pretty profound, is something that's, you know, in, in the world of recovery, and I'm not even going to try to get to your level of knowledge, but the little bit that I've dabbled in that world to to get some understandings that a lot of, there's a lot of talk about that it's trauma-based and, and certainly sometimes it can possibly work the other way around. Like if someone has had a genuine trauma that might create or exacerbate that, that exists, that existential right. um, their pain. Um, but you're saying even without a specific outside trauma, right. Exactly. The, the trauma is just existence. And that is the trauma that they're working through in the recovery world. They like the word trauma connecting that to the addiction. And I'm saying it, the, the, so if the, you look in the original, you know, like the original 12-step literature, like the big book, it never speaks about trauma. In fact, it's pretty clear that there are no particular things that happen to a person. There are people who had loving parents. There are people who had abusive parents. There are people who grew up wealthy, people who grew up poor, people who grew up with siblings, people who grew up an only child. What's So then what's the common denominator why everyone is just having such a hard time living without being self-medicated? Okay, and by the way, just stop for a second, disclaimer. Some people actually did have a trauma with a big T. They did have an obvious cataclysmic event, which was overwhelming. Okay, that certainly does happen. And we do see people respond to that by self-medicating. Okay, but what I'm saying is it is entirely possible to have a very nice, warm, supportive, safe upbringing and still be in excruciating pain just from embodiment. Okay, so then, you know... And, and I want to just add one more thing. Okay. I don't want to say this to get parents off the hook who could be doing better, but I do want to say this to parents who are working really hard and wondering what do they do to mess up their kid. Sometimes you didn't do anything wrong. Your child is just way too sensitive for this world. Okay, so that's a really good point, and I'm glad that you said it. And I want to circle back to one thing that's coming up for me as you're speaking, and that's the idea, and that's why I want to hear from you. Because if you're saying what you shared very vulnerably here, that you struggle with this, you know, you look around and you see people that are strugglers 
but you could see that they're struggling. It's affecting every year of their life. They cannot um, hold on a job. They cannot be a parent, whatever it is. Right. And then there are people that like you, and I don't know your personal life, but it seems to me, Baruch Hashem, that you're managing a pretty decent life. So there's hope there. So for somebody who's listening- Well, here, I was 10 minutes late for this call. <laughs> okay, well, yeah. Well, and, I, we and, I, and I had an hour to make the coffee and I started making it at one o'clock. But okay, yes, I am. <laughs> yeah, but like- High functioning, yeah. It's like, it's like somebody who said to my husband when he said, yeah, I think I might be addicted to food. And he said, well, were you ever late to a meeting because- <laughs> Was it, no, what did he say? Yeah, yeah. Did you ever lose, were you ever late to a meeting because you were too busy eating, you yeah. know? And like, right. yeah, right. Okay. Well, the point is that I'm trying to make is that, and this is why I'm, I'm glad that you're being honest and real here and authentic. Cause I think that's a, such a hopeful thing for us to hear, because when I'm listening to all this existential pain and, and as a parent, and you know, that you have a child that's dealing with that or a spouse that's dealing with that, it's, it's really hopeless sounding. It sounds like, well, how are they ever going to, how could you ever live a productive life right. in this world feeling such extension, such pain? Right. And what am I so, asking? Yeah. Become an addict? That's not a good solution. So, 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 what, what kind of hope? I guess I'm going up, 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 up the script here That's for a okay. minute. Well, we'll but I'm just curious. Like, what, what? Tell me something hopeful here for those that that well, are. Well, well, I, I here. <laughs> this might just be like clickbait, like a shocking statement, just for the sake of being shocking. Um, but maybe we'll say it like this: You want to be normal? You're never going to be normal. You can be lower than normal. You can be better than normal. Um, and what that means is, and and by the way, I'm not saying that to any segment or demographic. I, I really, I believe that about all human beings. I think we're all unique and we're all exceptional in our own way. I don't really, at the end of the day, I don't think there really is any true normal. But then, and then there's people who are feeling that even more acutely because they look around and there are less people like them than there are other types of people. But, you want to be normal? Don't be normal. Understand that all of this is a blessing and a curse. So if you're hypersensitive, yeah, especially when you're a kid, that's extremely overwhelming. Um, but hypersensitivity is hypersensitivity as a gift if you know how to channel it. You can use it productively. Um, there's there's a paradigm of the wounded healer. And, and I think that that's, that's a helpful idea to have in mind, that there are people who know how to help others because of the struggles that they have had. So when you talk about somebody who's been forced to encounter life on a really deep level in order to just survive, yeah, on, on one level, I guess that's sad that the person had to deal with so much. But if you look at it from another perspective, that was training that you could, you, you can't pay any school in the world to train you that way. That's, that's training that you, you, only your maker himself can assign to you. And, and people who go through that training, I'm calling it training, but it, it's really go, who go through life like that. You end up with a gift. And if you use that gift to help others, then to me, that's the most gratifying thing in the world. So you're saying if, you have to go through it. You can't just, um, you got to experience it for and figure out how to make it work for yourself. Kind of figure your work about workarounds. Like it's obvious that you figured out workarounds in your life. You figured out systems and models and whatever it is to right. make it all work for you. The other people in my life that I know that struggle with this also, and they're very, very successful. So you're saying that you need to figure it out. You got to live it. 
You got to live it. You got to figure it out. And, and workarounds is a great term for it. In other words, I'm not going to do it the normal way. And I know the normal way is much simpler and quicker. And, and, and I know that, but <laughs> for me, the elaborate, complex, deep, abstract way is going to actually be more effective and, and easier to implement than the supposedly normal way of doing something. And, and yeah, so that's, that's, I think we have to encourage people like figure out what works for you. Okay. But I, I want to push back on that just for a second, because um, those addicts who are in the world of recovery and have done the work and have sustained sobriety, all are these special souls who have who have chosen to make a better life for themselves, and very often they become therapists or, or uh, um, you know, addiction coaches, or in the world of recovery, and right. they turn they turn that into their superpower. Um, right. And and even people with it doesn't have to always be extreme. It, it could just be you know a, a person who's extremely ADD. Also, once they hit a certain level of dysfunction and everything is collapsing and everything's falling apart, right. all the place, they then learn how to do it. But right. that's an adult for an adult. What what can a child? What can an, uh, an adult do for a child to help them work through that? Okay. Adult, uh, that that okay. pain. Oh, like, I like, the pain. The, or are you talking about the the, the, the pain and, and turning it into a solution? Like like I th think of an eleven year old kid or a, you know they, they're they're not there yet. They're not drinking right. yet. They're that's not, right. Yeah, they're and, not and, and 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 as you're alluding to, you know, I, I I think you didn't say it explicitly, but I I heard it loud and clear. You you were you were alluding to hitting bottom. Like things got to get worse before they get better in many right. cases and, and, and you want to try to avoid that if possible and you and of course yeah you try to avoid that if possible right you don't purposely hit bottom it's something that happens in spite of your best efforts but what do you do with a kid who he hasn't discovered the superpowers yet he hasn't figured out all all of his workarounds yet Maybe life hasn't been painful enough yet that he's had to apply himself with extra fervor to this type of growth. So I, I you know, you're reminding me of a, a story. I, I, a school, I'm trying, I'm trying not to be very specific here with the details because of privacy, but there was a school that they were, I don't know why they got it into their head, but they were telling me they wanted me to come into the classroom and tell them which kids were going to have substance abuse problems, oh, which was so I, I thought it was a weird request. And I, and I told them, you know, that I don't I'm not trained in that area. I'm not a addiction counselor. They said, no, you wrote a book on recovery. I said, it, I wrote a book on spirituality that happens to be for people who are addicts in recovery, but they were insistent upon it. So. I said to them, I'm going to tell you why there's no point in me doing this. I said, um, because you're not going to believe me. You are expecting me to scan the class and figure out who are the criminals, the troublemakers, and tell you that, that, that you know, those kids, you got to watch them. They're going to be on drugs soon. But that's not the kid. It's the quiet kid in the back of the class writing poetry. It's the daydreamer. 
it's it's the sensitive souls, the artists, the poets. Those are the ones. Those are the ones who it is highly likely are going to seek self-numbing behavior. Not for fun, not to party and live it up, but rather to be able to function in this world just because without that numbing, life itself is too overwhelming. So I said, you're not going to believe me anyways because the, the, the model that you have in mind is totally... They're, they're looking for the, 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 the obvious rebel. But this is, we're not talking about rebels here. We're talking about people who are just trying to function. They're just trying to manage. They're just trying to figure out a life hack so they can be like everybody else. And if your mind is wired differently than everyone else, and as a result, you are experiencing constant stress. And if you find a chemical that will take the edge off of that, especially when you're young and you don't have a lot of consequences. And it's not like you have a, a you can't, you can't really, you don't have like a job to lose. You don't have a marriage that can fall apart. You know, what, what's the worst thing? You know, you, you, you flunk a few tests, right? The consequences when you're young are not grave enough and self-medicating can be much more profitable for many years before it, starts to before the 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 liabilities start to outweigh the the benefits so yeah you're reminding me of that story because you're, you're basically asking like what can you do if you see a kid who you kind of saying you know i hear i hear chase talking and i hear what he's describing and i think my kid is like that like what can i do that the next 10 years can be more bearable for him and for me. I mean, is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah. Or to you, to, to, to step into your world, to, to your experience a little, to your book for a moment, how do we raise the bottom on an 11 year old? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, I want to raise bottom always. A parent that's listening might say, I just want to make it easy. I mean, I mean, I get, I get messages like that a lot as do you, I'm sure you do too. Where, you know, I have a family member who's struggling and I, and I, I want to help them and I want I want to alleviate their pain or I want and they're probably experiencing something to similar to what you're saying. But as we know, we can't always we can't bot we can't lift the bottom up. We right. have to kind of let them live their lives and sometimes fall. And but we as parents, you just don't want that. You want your you don't want to see your child struggle. But it's even more than we don't want to see our children struggle. If we are to believe that Tara is MS and Chassidus has the answers, there's gotta be <laughs> to, to use the, your language, there's gotta be a hack. There's got to be a something right. that we can make the journey easier or, right. and, and, and not so dangerous or potentially dangerous for them. So what I would say is, I like I told you, I believe very firmly that what we're really describing is souls that are more sensitive to the problem of embodiment. And you can use whatever terms you want. To me, these are all um, secondary descriptions. So you can say addict, you can say autism spectrum, you can say ADHD, neurodivergent, whatever terms you want to use. To me, those basically just describe different ways of trying to manage the underlying problem of being existentially uncomfortable. 
uncomfortable in your own skin, to put it in very down-to-earth terms, okay? And I believe it is an acute sensitivity of the soul to how weird it is to be a separate entity with a separate consciousness um, and then plunged into a physical world, which is a further degree of separation from the oneness, then subjected to all of these different stimuli, which again is exacerbating the feeling of, of differentness and, and separation. And what is the solution, the real solution, not just the workaround, the life hack, which are important. Those are important crutches. But the real solution is oneness. And that's why if you have a child who's that deep, um, you may find that they need to speak about life in spiritual metaphysical terms that you might think is unnecessarily deep. You might think this is just way beyond their, 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 their age. It's not really, you know, adults don't even talk like this, but I mean, I could tell you a story. I, I remember vividly, I was three years old and I was standing on the green shag carpet, which was ever so fashionable in the 1970s. I remember vividly the carpet I was standing on, looking out the back window. And I don't remember why I was in a rage, but I was in an absolute rage, an absolute rage. Now, looking back on it with the insight that I have about myself, I realized that rage could have been literally could have been that I, I was I stepped on a crumb. Like it could have been something, some tiny sensorial thing. Um could have been I left something There's a weird smell in the house. What? There's a weird smell in the house. A weird smell. Any type of could have been could have been somebody used a word with not the exact connotation that I understood that word to mean. And it could have driven me crazy. Um, it could, I don't know why I was raging. It could have been something extremely trivial, probably was. Uh, but I just remember being three years old. I know how, how old I was because I remember how old I was when we moved to the house. And I remember it was when we first moved there. And I was looking out the back window and I'm raging. And I remember my mother came to me and she said, you know, can I do anything for you? And I said to her, and it's cringy because it sounds so precocious, but I just want you to understand there's nothing like noble about this at all. It is, it's, uh, this wasn't, this isn't spiritually deep in the conventional sense. This is just for me, how I was able to function. And I remember vividly, I told my mother, no, there's nothing for you to do. This is between me and Hashem. And to her credit, my mother left me alone and I was able to self-regulate and move on. Okay. There's a few things there that I just want to unpack. Um, first of all, that she knew to check on me, but she also knew to give me space. Very important. Sometimes we just need to figure out how to calm ourselves down. We need to know that you're there, but, you know, sometimes if you're too helpful, that's just more overstimulation. <laughs> it's a it's a real vicious cycle. Like 
you know, sometimes being helpful to someone who's having a meltdown is actually the opposite of being helpful. But another thing, I mean, obviously the, the, the story is about a little kid speaking, speaking about God is like, well, why is he speaking that way? Who told him to speak this way? You know, this is so precocious. Did somebody put him up to that? Like, who's he trying to impress? But what I'm telling you is that for me, that was like the only thing I had. And, and I wasn't trying to be deep. It was just like, it was pretty clear to me that whatever I was dealing with, I could only process it effectively by going to God, whatever my concept of God was when I was three years old. And I just want people to understand that, you know, and I'm not talking about like super mature three-year-olds. I mean, I'm sure, not I'm sure, I know as a three-year-old, I was just a regular immature three-year-old who, you know, laughed at potty humor and, uh, you know, made mischief and, you know, just a regular three-year-old. But at the same time, what I'm saying is there is a certain necessity for spiritual grounding, which is a bit of an oxymoron, spiritual grounding, you know, but integration into the embodiment experience that is an absolute vital critical life skill of somebody who is sensitive to that degree. So if I'm parenting such a child, can I, I, I guess what you're essentially saying is they need to get that spirituality. They either have it. And as a parent, maybe the best thing I could do is try to um, nudge them in that direction or, you know, in moments of calm, say, you know, you know, talk about lofty ideas with, uh, with yes. them. So they have I love that you say in moments of calm because the <laughs> no, at the moment, there's no point of doing anything. Right. Exactly. So what does it look like to be there for your child and at the same time, give them space? I mean, that's based on context. How do I know the difference between giving me space and abandoning me? I only know based on, on context. If you leave the room and are no longer available to me, even when I seek you out, then I know what it means when you leave the room, <laughs> right? So it, it's only based on context. If your child knows that you are available to them and you're interested and you're concerned, then you have the ability to give them space, which is often the only thing you can give them when they are most disturbed. You said something on a podcast, I think with Razel, maybe it was one of the first podcasts and you were, we, we got into something about parenting and you, you were talking about trying to teach your kids about Shema Yisrael. And at the time I said like, that's so whatever, lofty, that's, lofty and, and, and not, not practical for some reason it's, re it's resonating better today. I don't know um, what you said probably a few years ago. All right, you know, not not that we can't spend all day on this, but but because all of our time is limited, I, I there was another really huge thing that you said, and, and frankly, I've never heard it before. And you kind of indicated that you never really heard it before. You kind of just thought of it, and yeah, it, it's truly a bombshell. And 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 I'll I'll put the words out there, but but if you can um, um, elaborate the on physical it. piece, yes, yes, I I think I think 
it because if if you're right, this is well. This... Why don't you give us context? Because you are you guys are sharing something like sound like you just had like a conversation, but you know, for those of us that weren't there, can you explain? Okay, so so you you had mentioned. I'll I'll just put it out there, and then you you take it wherever you want to go. You mentioned that the same, um, not terminal uniqueness, but this existential uh, this the pain terminal of uniqueness is a great way to describe it. By the way, you know, but but isn't that us? Okay, and I, I don't want to limit it to any. Uh, area of 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 pain. the the pain that we're talking about that cer certain people feel existential angst terminal uniqueness lonely in a crowded room uh, yes. extra sensitive all that stuff you, all terms are helpful we can use all of them yes okay so all of those terms you said that in in your understanding it could also uh, manifest in the physical realm and it, including autoimmune disorders and I'm not even gonna say another word why don't you elaborate well on I, I mean whatever i have a i have a theory that i mean i can just say anecdotally personally at 12 years old i was diagnosed with a juvenile rheumatoid arthritis um and if that's an autoimmune disorder um by the way ashkenazim have a lot of autoimmune disorders you know crohn's and stuff like that um what's with the autoimmune disorders um i was just having lunch yesterday with a psychiatrist who's uh a good friend and somebody who listens to a lot of my stuff and I put it out there for him. And as a psychiatrist, he has a, you know, an MD, a medical background. He said he has to really think about it because, um, you know, like you said, if this, if there's something to this, it's pretty serious. Uh, look, we are complex systems. Each one of us, there's the spiritual, the mental, emotional, social, but there's also the body. Don't forget the body. The um, body. Yeah. And, and so what is embodiment trauma? Embodiment trauma is basically, it's a rejection of my own physical self. So what's an autoimmune disorder? It's, I am recognizing my own body as foreign and a threat. And then I'm protecting myself from myself. I, I, I first, it first occurred to me that, that uh, this, these, these types of, this type of embodiment trauma uh, would manifest as a type of penchant for self-destruction or self-annihilation when I was writing God of Our Understanding. I didn't fully explicitly explain it over there, but I, I did mention things like, well, you know, the, a person watches someone who's self-medicating and says, um, you know, you're going too far. You're, you know, you're not just drinking for a buzz. You're, 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 you're destroying yourself. And, you know, the alcoholic's answer would be like, of course I'm destroying myself. What do you think I'm trying to do here? Destroy self, right? Self, meaning separate consciousness, selfhood, ego. That's what's driving me crazy. That's what's causing me all this trouble. So I'm trying to blot that out. I'm trying to erase that, right? So to me, it's not such a big leap to say if I would choose to destroy myself through um various different behaviors perhaps my cells would also try to join in the act and attack my own body for the same reason 
Okay, it's so a theory, whatever, you know. I don't think this is a theory. I mean, are you familiar with Dr. Sarno? I'm familiar with nothing. Okay. <laughs> well, about, uh, I would say about four years ago, I had a debilitating back pain. I couldn't sit. I drive my kids about three hours a day, just back and forth in carpool. I could, I had to stop at red lights to stand up because I couldn't sit. That's how bad the back pain was. And um, I was a young mother at the time. And like, it wasn't, it didn't make sense. And I went for MRIs and everything. And there was nothing wrong. They said there might be a slip disc, but anyway, I eventually found out, found Dr. Sarno's book from other people and my um, doing his method, my, my pain went away, but the basic theory that he shares about is that there's no method it's acceptance of a fact. When your brain can basically accept this fact, that's when your pain dissipates. And what is the fact? The fact is basically that your brain is, your conscious, your subconscious is so concerned that there are things in your life that are going on subconsciously that you can't deal with so much. So what your body does, it creates pain. It holds back oxygen from certain parts of your body. And as such, you experience physical pain. It, with the brain would rather you be focusing on your back than on those things. Now, his theory is you don't even need to know what those stresses are. Once you accept this fact, your brain dis starts sending oxygen back to that part of your body and the pain dissipates. That's what his theory is. He, he was, a, he was laughed at, you know, I mean, I went into the meeting with my surgeon and I said to him, well, now I, I came to this appointment six weeks later, cause that's the first appointment I can get. And I said to him, my pain is gone. That do you know of Dr. Sarno? And he started laughing. He's like, that's just like, not real stuff. Right. Quackery. Exactly. Now, right. bottom line is, is that it works. So it's and not- you didn't have to get the surgery. No. I mean, back surgery, the the, the actual um, success, rate. success rate is so low. I mean, I think people go in, they go for another surgery, and then it goes to this side because it jumps from place to place. It goes to that rotary right. cuff, that part. That's that's what his whole book's about. Right. So it's not it's not dissimilar to what you're saying. Not dissimilar at all. And, and imagine now if the thing that you are fighting- against accepting is the very fact of your embodiment your existence essentially your existence so we'd have to find some way to get you to become comfortable with your existence to get mm -hmm. you to accept that being a body or being embodied is okay you know, something that's striking me as you guys are talking is one of the Sarno suggestions is to write out all your things that are bothering you and get it out. Yeah. Get it out. And not, not so dissimilar from the fourth step of get it all out, get it out of you, get it out so you can talk about it. Um, all right. We're, we're short on time. I have two more things I want to hit. If, if, if yeah. there's one is one, one is one other thing that you said to me, you said the flip side of the coin is the narcissist. Oh, yeah, these are just theories. You know, I, I can't take responsibility for using your theories are wonderful. terms correctly. That's what we're here for, to hear your theories, not mine. So, so just expand on that for a minute. Just explain what you meant. So, you know, another term that I'll use to describe these, we, we've used a lot of terms today to describe this type of personality. Sometimes they call them empaths. So... It's interesting. Like I mentioned, you want me to give you eye contact so you can feel like I'm doing the socially acceptable thing? Or do you want me to really focus on you? Because, you know, to really focus on somebody means to feel exactly what they're feeling. Like, which is why people seek me out all the time for advice. I say, I don't give advice. I just absorb you and say it back to you. So 
but I can't do that very often because it's exhausting because I, in order to do it, it's not detached. There's no, I'm not a, an objective observer. If I let somebody in, I'm feeling what they're feeling. I'm, and I know it sounds a little bit, you know, no, no. I mean, corny. isn't that the story with the Mittler Rebbe? Like, I mean, that's literally, I don't, I'm not saying you're the Mittler Rebbe, but I'm saying that's the idea. Well, the Mittler Rebbe is saying that's what's necessary in order to help somebody. Yeah. I mean, so yes, that's correct. That's, that is what is necessary for, for helping somebody is to feel what they're feeling or at least one way of helping people. Um, so let's just say there's a certain type of person who it feels incredible empathy. They, 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 again, people who are in a room full of too much human energy. There are too many people in this room and I'm feeling everything, right? It's just too much. I gotta, I'm being drained by being among all of these, all these radios that are turned on, right? And I'm hearing all the, all of the noise. There's like a movie of this guy who could hear people's thoughts and he, he he comes into a room like with like hundreds of people and all he hears is he's like, had to run out because it's so loud. He's just like, oh, why is she wearing that? Oh, look at her shoes. That's horrible. Like, oh my God, what was she thinking? And it's like, I have to get out of here. So right. that's what it sounds like. <laughs> yes, 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 100%. So now consequently, you don't necessarily have the best natural social skills because- you're noticing a whole bunch of stuff that other people don't notice and you're oversensitive and, you know, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't play well in most social settings. So what you do is you learn how to mask and, and masking, by the way, is one of the main things that puts incredible strain on a person, which I was talking about before. Um, being one of these sensitive souls is a, constant drain it's constantly depleting one of the things that's draining and depleting is when you're out and about among people there is a certain degree of masking that has to take place otherwise you're going to be a social outcast and who wants to be a social outcast and that it's exhausting so there's a certain skill you learn how to mask um the masking is basically because if i just be myself you know, for 30 seconds, you'll think it's a cute party trick and it's kind of cool. Uh, but for a long-term relationship, nobody wants to be around the weirdo. So you have to learn how to mask. Wow. The, the flip side of that is, call it a narcissist, but I'm not using these terms clinically, who ha actually has no empathy. Has no empathy. He doesn't feel what other people feel. He's incapable of feeling what other people feel. He also masks, but for the opposite reason. So you have these two opposite personae who are both very adept at masking. <laughs> but one is doing it because he feels too much and is trying to diminish himself so that other people can be comfortable around him. The other is masking because he's trying to get something out of you. And there are a lot of, I, 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 there's a strange symbiosis in the universe between these sensitive souls and these narcissists. And often, by the way, they directly link to each other and have a strange uh, parasitic relationship. 
which I could talk about that at length. And in fact, I, I should mention part of what has gotten me really thinking about these ideas is I did a, a class six months ago called, I think it was called uh, Black Sheep Scapegoats and Cycle Breakers. And it was about people who come from narcissistic families and how they escape that and start a, a healthy life. And I based it on the biblical story of, of Jacob and his father-in-law. And uh, it has like 190,000 views. It's like my, uh, for my long form videos, it's my most popular video. And that over, I think 2000 comments there, the comments there are incredible, just incredibly profound people just sharing the catharsis they had from, from seeing this video and saying, wow, you just described my, my family of origin. Um, so I was never particularly interested in this concept of narcissism and narcissistic abuse. I gave that class as a one-off. But then when I saw the reaction to it, 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 it became an important piece of the puzzle for me. And I realized that there is a lot of um, natural correlation between these sensitive souls and what I almost call like the, their mirror image in, in the narcissist. Um, they marry each other? Is it the narcissist? Sometimes they marry each other, which is an absolute disaster. Um, often what will happen if it's intergenerational, what you'll have is a child who is scapegoated by scapegoated, I mean, and, and people who haven't seen it don't believe it when I explain it this way. And I just want to say for a full disclaimer, this is not the family I grew up in, thank God. <laughs> but I've seen, but I've seen it and I and I know it exists. They will pick a child, and that child is always wrong. Everything they do is wrong. They made us late. They um, they ruined the family outing. There's always this kid who everything, and if he'll even achieve something good, that was somehow bad. Oh, you got an A on your test? That was bad. And the reason it is, is because the narcissistic parent has to be perfect, but nobody's perfect. So who's going to own any of the mistakes that the narcissistic parent makes? Well, this child who's the scapegoat is assigned that duty to literally carry the shame and the blame of the parent who has to be flawless and everyone has to pretend that that parent is flawless. So that also happens subconsciously, like maybe. Okay. So then the question is, how does the narcissist pick the scapegoat? How do they pick the scapegoat? So in my original YouTube video, I said, I think it's random, but then I, I've learned more from my students than anyone else. I read those comments, thousands of comments, and I started seeing a trend. People saying, I was the scapegoat, and it's not random. I'll tell you why I was scapegoated. I was the truth teller. And then the penny dropped, and I made another video called The Emperor's New Clothes. And I said, I just had a thought. You know, one of the things that these neurodivergent sensitive souls are often um, described as being is I mentioned, you know, being socially inappropriate um, is, is saying things that normal people know to lie about, right. you know, the white lies that society thrives on in order to function. Or what about a filter or just, just, can we call it a filter? 
Like not everything has to, not, not every truth has to be said. It's not necessarily always a white lie, or maybe I'm wrong on this. Yeah. But, but when you're super sensitive, it, 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 we can be very, I'm owning it. I'm saying we very like militant about it. Like if I say, how are you doing? You say, I'm fine. You're lying to me. And I know you're not really lying, but it's look, I'm trying to make sense of reality at every single second. I can't deal with your misinformation. <laughs> like stop throwing me for a loop. I, I can't deal with that. Right. So there's a tendency among, among these neurodivergent types, especially if you're talking about on the autism spectrum, especially to be really, really truthful um, to the point of being offensive not because God forbid they're trying to offend anybody, but because the truth, the truth, right? Neshamas of base Shammai. Beis Shammai is about truth, about the ideal, about the the, the, the spiritual truth. Well, why do, you want, why do you want me to lie? So, right, Beis Shammai is the one who says, the guy married a girl and she's not pretty. You just say that she's not, I don't know, she's not pretty. What, well, should I lie? So, it's a Mishnah, but I'm not, I'm not making this up. I'm not, it's not like fan fiction. It's, a, it's an actual Mishnah. Okay. But at any rate, so I said, I think maybe these truth tellers are neuro, neurodivergent kids who obviously a child wants to be secure in their own family. If they could play the game and, and, and go along with the narrative, the false narrative, they would. But what happens is eventually they slip and they say the truth, not because they're trying to out anybody, not because they're trying to make anybody squirm, you know, talking again about the difference between the, the, the sensitive soul and the narcissist, the sensitive soul says the truth and makes you squirm, but doesn't realize that they made you squirm until six months later when they find out that you don't like them anymore. And then they feel terrible about it and then probably go self-medicate over it. The narcissist says the truth to make you squirm, to make you squirm. Like that was the whole point. They know it'll make you squirm and it's to get the upper hand. Okay. So imagine this little truth teller kid in this family who says the truth, or, or, or maybe he's even trying to mask, but eventually you come home and you, you let your mask down and you say the truth. You say the truth like, no, it was mommy or it was daddy who lost the car keys it wasn't me you know that lost the car keys or like oh uh, didn't you just tell us such and such why are you saying such and such not because this kid is trying to bust anybody he's saying it totally innocently he's just trying to make sense of the world and truth is really really important truth is we don't have time for lies you know processing reality as it is is exhausting already have to process lies on top of that like i'm gonna have to go sleep for 12 hours if you tell me a lie i have to have truth so this little neurodivergent kid is saying the truth well that's the cardinal sin in the narcissistic family because the whole thing thrives on the lie that the narcissistic parent is perfect well, that's how they become the scapegoat that's how they become the scapegoat. So I put out a video. I called it the emperor's new clothes. And I said the story of the emperor's new clothes, you know, the, the parable about these scammers who told the king, we have this special cloth that is uh, only very refined people can see it. So the king didn't want to admit that he couldn't see it. There was no cloth. It was, it was, it was pantomime, but he would, he didn't want to admit that he couldn't see it. So he ends up walking down the street naked and everyone has to pretend that he's wearing this amazing suit until this one little kid says, but the king's naked. 
I said, you know, I always used to think that story was that the kid was sort of like the, you know, the whistleblower. The king is, the, it's a farce. He's not really wearing it. He, no, he's not a whistleblower. He's a little neurodivergent kid who's like, but the king's naked. Like, no judgment. I'm not, I'm not trying to bust anybody. I'm not trying to humiliate anybody. It's just true. Doesn't everybody else see? Like, reality check here. Can, can I check in with everybody? Isn't the king naked? And that's the most egregious sin. You cannot say the truth. Polite society will punish you for saying the truth. I'm going to repeat this because I want people to hear this. Regular, normal, healthy, polite society will punish people for telling the truth. How much more so a sick system where there's a narrative that somebody's impossibly perfect in such a system, anybody who tells the truth is going to be severely punished. Wow. So all, all these things are related. Okay, so we're all out of time. I I, I want to make two. Uh, one is just like a general statement. Is is I think it's important for people to know. Um, it, it's very clear that someone who is going back to the neurodivergent word will often come across as arrogant, obnoxious. Yes. Um, and 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 people often just look at the surface and say, "What a what a, a fill in the blank. What what a, what a difficult person." <laughs> Right, yeah. What an arrogant person. When, yeah. when, when, if they just take a moment and look a minute longer, they may find out that actually the guy is super kind, super wonderful, and super sweet, and super overwhelmed at the moment. And you're stepping on them while there's eight thousand radios playing in their head, and and they're but going that, out of their mind. But that might sound like you're excusing negative behavior, even if somebody is experiencing existential pain and is overwhelmed and is overstimulated. It's still not an excuse to, to lash, out. lash out or to. I mean, if you need to go out of the room and take your space, that, that that's respectful. But to take it out on other people is where it can become Fair. quite, you know, if somebody has to. Lose. Right. So there, there's there's two sides of this, um, you know, and that's why I think like a lot of 12 step recovery is about self-awareness, personal stock taking, because if you are that deeply sensitive and in your head, you do end up upsetting people and not realizing the other half of the story. I believe you mentioned earlier, the fourth step where you write the resentments. I believe a big part of why alcoholics have to write the resentments is because if you're that type of sensitive soul, there are a lot of, I'll put it this way, one sided fights that you were in that you would swear were one sided and you have no idea that you started them. You have no idea. Um, and that's why it's like you're saying, it's not an excuse just because Hashem made you this way. It's not a license to be rude to people, to to purposely flout social norms that make people uncomfortable. It's not an excuse. Absolutely not. Um, so, but there, there are two, there are basically two sides here. For the rest of us, for normal, quote unquote, normal people, um, so be a little bit compassionate and understand, you know, this person is struggling with a lot more than what you see beneath the surface. But then for the people who are struggling, you have to be humble enough to say, there's a lot of problems that you're creating for yourself and you just don't see how you're creating it.
and you just have to kind of take it on faith. <laughs> you know, it's a lot of you're you're causing your own misery in a lot of ways, and and you don't see it. Okay, you don't see it. So that's part of the acceptance. That's part of the that's part of why faith is so important. It's like uh, there's there's even with all the exquisite models that help make things make sense, you got to admit that you're still missing a lot. And as long as you're humble about it and admit that you're missing a lot, I think then there can be peace. So, well, let's say you're a parent of a child that's um, like all that we've talked about today. And um, they're exp they're experiencing it, but they're acting out of negative behaviors that are abusive to others because I'm sure you've, you, you know, sure. they, that happens. So in your opinion, what is the appropriate way for those parents that are neurotypical to respond in the moment and later when the child's come? Yeah. Well, in the moment, there's very little to do in the moment. You know, in my parenting course, I speak about the difference between policing and parenting. Right. Uh, policing doesn't teach anything. You just do it in order to maintain safety. So if your kid is hitting another kid and you grab your kid and bring them away, that's called policing. You didn't really teach him anything. It's not going to actually impart any type of value in him that will be useful the next time. You're going to have to stop him again each time. But sometimes we we have to do policing because just a matter of safety. So in the moment, you know, if it requires getting in between, even physically getting in between one kid and another kid. That, that's what we do. Okay. But as far as long-term, meaning not in the moment, right. during, during a calm time, I think it's very important to understand that the unwanted behaviors are really not the focus, shouldn't be the focus. The focus needs to be expanding the capacity for uncomfortability. In other words, I have this kid who's always fighting with his siblings. So I'm going to teach him don't hit. Okay. So then you're going to have to teach him don't hit. Could I bite? No, don't hit. Don't bite. Oh, could I kick? Can I scream? Can I smash things? Okay. So it's clearly not about dealing with the behavior. Let's go a little bit deeper. This child is overwhelmed. This child is reaching their emotional capacity much more quickly than other children. So let's get to the underlying causes and conditions. What can I do for this child, A, to perhaps expand their capacity for frustration, and B, to find some acceptable channel for those intense feelings when they arise, as opposed to the just constantly trying to deal with the symptoms. It's like you take a headache, you take a, a aspirin for your headache, but maybe you have a headache because you're dehydrated. You need to drink more water. So you can just keep putting aspirin on top of it. You're not dealing with the underlying issue. So what I'm hearing you say is, is that your child might need to have a punching bag where he knows he can go to when he's feeling dysregulated. And at the same time, you need to be building up his, his um, capacity to withstand certain struggles and difficulties and build up his spirituality talk about things that are build bigger spirituality yes build absolutely spiritually, whatever way and find what it is for your child because every everyone's going to look different every child's experience spiritually speaking is going to take each parent to figure out how that is to how it has to happen for that child okay so because we're, we're out of time um i just want but before we wrap up i just want to mention something incredibly important since after all if my model is valid 
the entire problem here is being allergic to one's own embodiment. So the ultimate resolution has to be not only accepting that begrudgingly, but by really embracing the embodiment. And that's why service is so important. Getting out of your head, which can be a maddening place to be, and getting into your body. And I know people ground themselves in their body. There are techniques that I'm aware of through cultural osmosis, you know, just about... I think it's popular in, in recovery from trauma about just feeling your body. I, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about, that's fine too. If that's a tool that works for you, great. But what I'm talking about is harmonizing your soul with your body by using your body as the vehicle for service. Okay. So there's something therapeutic about a child putting money in a tzedakah box. It's not just ethical, it's therapeutic. That's a harmonizing act where you're using your body, where you're using the physical vehicle to do something that's greater than yourself and that has meaning beyond yourself and where you're harmonizing yourself with the physicality. Hmm. Acts of service, physical acts of service. Um, okay. I, I, I hear that. And I, I just, I'm wondering what that looks like for little children, but I think each parent has to think about that and see. Little children, toddlers can can put the penny in the pushka. Right. I think that's why the rebel was so into that particular Physical, action. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, did, did we cover maybe the most important question of the day, which is if you are identifying with this conversation, what what is the takeaway? What's the homework for the individual? Well, I, I have one more question prior to that. My last, my last question is, is that if somebody is, um, neurotypical and what is the most important thing that they need to keep in mind when living with a neurodivergent in their home, a loved one, parent, child, spouse, what is the most important thing to the most life? important thing? Um, I'm going to get really, really practical. I'm going to come down from my lofty place right now. And I'm going to say something really, really like painfully simple, Oh, it which can't is, work. yeah, please be clear. Don't be polite. The politeness is confusing and causes drama. Be so clear, true. be clear about instructions, be clear about expectations, be clear about feelings, even negative feelings. Don't cause somebody to be confused and wondering how to read your signals. Be clear. Love that. Can't read your mind. What do you mean by that? Tell me. Right. That is such a really. really well, actually, I can read your mind. And you're saying one thing. And your body. Your doing face is doing another thing. Your thoughts are telling me another thing. And I'm really confused. Okay, I love that. That's such a okay. So that's so that's be really but important. Truthful. Don't lie to me. It just uses unnecessary bandwidth. Just be truthful. So I can tell you that I'm extremely depleted, and I feel like I want to slap you, and I don't know how or where I'm going to find the energy to continue being in this relationship with you because I'm so exhausted from the constant. I don't want to say negativity, but the constant right. draining. Uh, draining that that is causing me this neurotypical person to be. Living with somebody who's so neurodivergent, I would say that's ninety oh, percent. That, what you hurtful. said is what you said is ninety percent okay. I think you can do it. With a, I think you can do it a little, a little bit more gently. But yeah, you can say I'm depleted. 
Um, the way you're responding to me, you're doing things you don't even realize, which are absolutely exhausting. I'm not even sure you're capable of understanding what I'm talking about, but I'm so tired. Like, but try to do it as gently as possible. Yeah. Be kinder. Rays will be more empathetic. Okay. I'm going to keep that in mind. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's just finish off. Let's wrap this all up nightly, nicely in a bow. What is the takeaway? What is the, like, what do we need to walk away with from all of this? What's our... What is what is what is really important thing for us to keep in mind here? Siddhis. Okay. Mitas Kislev is coming. What is Tatus of Alshamtiv? There's a Hayem Yem that says um, there are three schools of thought. One teaches you about how lowly the physical world is that all physical things are temporal and passing and have no enduring value and that's called musr another another school of thought tells you about the value of spiritual ideas like uh values truth equality justice the opposite of physicality, abstraction, spirituality, how great that is, and that you should seek those ideas and live in that world of ideas. And that's called hakira. Okay, so the first one is that physical things are not to be run after, that's musa. Second one is spiritual ideals are to be run after, that is hakira. And then there's a third school of thought that teaches you The value of physicality when it's refined by the spiritual, as well as, and this is the bigger uh, concept here, the importance of spirituality when it's embodied in the physical, right? You have both. The importance of physical things being refined by some spiritual uh, aspect, but also conversely, the spiritual needs expression in something physical. That one God created both, both the physical and the spiritual, for one purpose. And that's called the teachings of Chsidis. So Chsidis is the harmonization between the spiritual and the physical. That not only, I'll call it, when I say spiritual and, and physical, let's call it ideas and things. Not only do things, physicality, need ideas behind them, meaning which is spirituality, but spirituality, ideas, need things. They need to be expressed in things, which is the whole concept of the soul came to the body for a reason. The soul is getting something by being here. Embodiment isn't just to torture you. Embodiment is incredibly important. The spirituality on its own never can reach its, its, its fulfillment. Um, it, it's only through embodiment. And I know this is a very lofty concept. I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly aware of that. I'm, I, I know that if I were speaking to an average crowd, I wouldn't talk about things like this because 90% of people don't have this problem. But I'm assuming that this podcast at this point, this late into it, the only people who are still listening are people who either relate to this idea or are highly motivated to figure out how to relate to it because they know somebody who does relate to it. So 
the answer is Chassidus. Chassidus gives us a way of understanding and implementing the harmonization of the spiritual and the physical. That's what it all comes down to. And ultimately, it's a preparation for Mashiach when the physical world will be holier than heaven. If the physical world will never become holier than heaven, then why did my poor little soul have to be tortured with this embodiment situation? It's only because through embodiment, we can achieve something for the soul that's even greater than what it had in the spiritual realms. And again, this sounds very lofty, very like, what are you talking about? Okay, I hear you. But there are people who are having a hard time functioning right now. And for them, many of them, this little piece of information is incredibly helpful. It's, 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 it's healing. It is life-affirming. Uh, maybe even life-saving. And that's what Yutuskith is all about, right? The Valshamt of um, this whole idea of that Chassidus is here to, to get us ready for Mashiach, to save us before we, to really make that effective change. Okay. And, and you know, everything I'm telling you, like, like I told you, I didn't read any books. I can't even listen to the Yechenel Polter HSP podcast, right? <laughs> Anything I'm telling you is from Chassidus. I know just enough about this stuff to be able to use some of the lingo, and I'm not even using it properly, okay? What I'm telling you is only from Chassidus. This model, I didn't make a hodgepodge of some secular ideas together, Lahavdil with Torah. I don't know the secular ideas. I'm using some of that lingo, like I said at the very beginning, because it's a shorthand that'll help you understand me more quickly. But this model that I'm describing right now is purely from Chassidus. So imagine if we lived before Yutes Kislev, if we lived before the Alter Rebbe, and we didn't have we didn't have these concepts. They weren't accessible to us. You had to be one of uh, Shimon Ben Yechai's uh, students in order to know this much uh, mystical uh, dimensions of the Torah, and otherwise the, the rest of the whole world didn't have any access. So okay, we so live in so we so live I, in a time when we actually have a chance to, to fix yeah. these things. Right, so would you say that for you personally, tying this all back to the beginning of our questions here, where you said why you're so passionate about it, do you think, for, what I'm hearing you say is, and tell me if I'm right, that basically Hasidus is what's getting you through your existential pain and anger. 100%, and, and, and I've always been open about that like if you think i learned to say this because it's inspiring you, 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 you're gravely overestimating me so this is a model that makes life bearable and sometimes even makes it even better than bearable i can do some things that i feel are are meaningful and making the world a better place but this is this is not for fun. This is not for amusement. It's not for inspiration. Um, this is these are the tools that I need, and that's why also, if I ever share something as a speaker as a teacher, I'm not saying it because it's eloquent. Yes, I do like to say things in a way that has a ring to it because I guess that's fun, 
But I'm not saying it because it's eloquent. I'm saying it because this is what I'm using in order to live my life. Yeah. And that's probably why it resonates with so many people. Okay, Rabbi Rabbi Tao. Well, let, let me just just I wasn't going to go there, but since you just said what you said, I'm just going to throw it in just for for fun. I know where you're going already. You know about my pet peeve. Okay, go ahead. I'll let you say it. <laughs> no, go ahead. So they won't and think that it, it, it's 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 many people's pet peeves, but I think people who are neurodivergent it's particularly painful. And everyone likes to be recognized for what they do in any kind of public space. So if I come up with a cute quip and I have a good meme or a good line, you know, zinger or one liner, right? And someone copies it and pastes it, um, at a minimum, give me attribution, but, right? But when people just copy and paste it, or worse, even sell it off as their own. Um, that makes a regular person crazy. A neurodivergent person, it, it just sets them off to, to no end. And there's a reason for that. And 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 so that's something we discussed. Maybe I'll let you say it in more eloquent words than me. Well, I think you were there in real time when I was interacting with an account on Instagram. And I would like to say the proper name of this account because she was very helpful to me. And actually through my interaction with her, we put her in contact. She happens to be Jewish and living in North California. And she, we put her in contact with her local shliach in like a very remote area. So that was a pretty cool thing. But um, she said something about how neurodivergent people often have their ideas stolen. And I said, tell me more about that. And she was very gracious. You're looking up the name of the account. I really want to give her credit here. So, um, I, I said, tell me more about that. So she said, well, you know, neurodivergent people think differently. So they come up with cool, interesting, original stuff. And then other people don't like neurodivergent people because they don't play the game. They're not good at being social. So she said they don't feel guilty about stealing from these people. And like the penny dropped for me, I realized there are things that I say in the public arena that I only have that formulation of words because of real blood, sweat, and tears, because I was having a hard time functioning in life, and I had to learn a truth and distill it into words so that I could function. And then once I have it, sure, I'll say it in public. But if somebody else takes that from me, that's the way I, the metaphor that I, that I, I made up, I said, it's like I went and I felled the tree and carved my crutches from that tree with my own bare hands. And then you come and you take my crutch and, and you use it as a, as a flourish. Like, like flippantly. But words can Yeah, flippantly. Like, but thoughts this... can never be taken from you. They're, what? They're... But thoughts can never be taken from you. It's not... No, he's he's not saying that it's a bad thing. He's just saying it's painful. That's all. Uh -huh. It's painful to have people just you know. Well, thoughts can never be taken from you. About something that it's your. It's not true that thoughts cannot be taken from you. Um, also, true. please understand that if you're a very deep person with this embodiment crisis, existential angst, and you're not really good oh, at embodiment syndrome embodiment syndrome, and you're not good at the social stuff. So, you know, all human beings crave the society of their fellows. It's it's a basic 
need. So it's not like I can get a whole lot of social strokes from being good at small talk. I can't. But this you can. My own, what? But from this you can. But from this I can. So this is what I've got. This is how I'm able to connect to other human beings. So just understand that this is my baby. This is my baby. Okay. So like a little respect. That's all I'm saying. Don't deprive me of, of, of the little bit that I do have. Um, the name of the account is Divergent Autism Services. Don't 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 treat it flippantly when this was born from from pain and struggle. And and then finally, when I have it, this is how I can actually build a bridge and connect to other people. And I say, here's my painful revelation that has now given me clarity. Does it resonate with you? And people say, Yes, that resonates with us. Ah, okay. Like, that's it. That's what I do instead of schmoozing with people, which I'm not capable of doing. Okay. okay for those who want to look up that account, it's Divergent, Divergent Autism Services with an underscore in between each word. All right. Yeah. Well, okay. So this was very insightful, very helpful. Um, I would have liked to have gone also a little bit more uh, into actual I guess like I like tips and tricks, but you know, we know that you don't like that. You like more of the ideas. Conceptual. Yeah. Understand that. That's um, Beishamai, by the way. We um, love the abstract. Okay, so I'm very base hello. What could I tell you? Um, but but I just want to again thank you so much for being vulnerable, being real with us. So um, what I would like to suggest to you, and, and I want I don't want to thank I want to thank you for being clear with me and saying what you didn't accomplish that you wanted to accomplish. And that I love that. So I can say back to you, I want to propose a partnership. Okay. Some base Hillel Neshamas who are more practical could come up with the implementation of these ideas. But like once you've listened to this and you've come up with your model and your tips and tricks that work for you, mm-hmm. yeah, them so that those of us can really use them in our lives with our Neshamas from base Shammai. Yeah, we'll figure it out together. It's a, you know, we're all we're all in this together. Yes, this is a process. Okay, I guess basically what you're saying is wait for part two, everyone. It's- <laughs> and it doesn't have to be that I'm the guest for part two. Okay, I, Probably I, not. I hear that. So yes, I, I, we'd love feedback is basically what we're saying here. Come on, soulwords.org. And um, you can always comment on my podcast as well. My my website's a positivecoach.com. And um, you can email me through that as well. And um, I thank you so much again, Rabbi Taub, for all of your realness, authenticity, and your vulnerability today. You know what? I I know I'm prolonging the, we're trying to wrap up over here. People compliment me a lot on my authenticity. It's like one of my, it's one of my, uh, it's, it's part of my brand, right? The authenticity. So I just want you to understand something. I know there are people who purposely try to be authentic. I just want you to know, again, like the way that I gravitate towards Hasidus, it's not because I've chosen to do it. It's like, this is what I need to do. Authenticity, I don't deserve any praise for being authentic. I can't survive if I'm not authentic. Okay, I get that. So we shouldn't That's thank it. you. So, and I'm just so surviving. And I want to thank you for allowing me the opportunity to, you know, Hasidus says when you talk something through, it makes it clearer for you. So I, 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 I've been... Thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk this stuff through so that I can use it more in my own life, which will make me be able to share it with others better, which will then consequently help me to use it for my own life better. And, you know, just 
initiates a virtuous circle. Well, thanks again. Thanks again. Okay. We're done. Mm -hmm.